My books are multiplying up here. Well, Merry Christmas uh, to you from my family, and uh, our prayer is that each of you have a just a blessed day today, celebrating with family or with friends, or just with your church family here this morning. Uh, if you uh, don't do anything more than that, it is a good reminder of how blessed we are, uh, and it is my prayer uh, that you would be resting in Christ this holiday, and you would find, as what we read, him to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open them with me to the book of Matthew. And it's not every year we get to celebrate on Christmas Day, uh, on Sunday, uh, in our Sunday morning worship gathering. And we won't do this again till the year 2033. So you can put that in your calendar. Uh, that's the next time Christmas falls on a Sunday. Uh, so there you go. Matthew chapter number 2. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can always grab one in front of you in the pew. My focus this morning for our time would be to consider uh, verses 1 through 12. And... Uh, really, chapter number two, we don't uh, see anything that Jesus has done himself as of yet. Um, and it is more of a response to what we read back in verse number 25 and, and 24, actually even 23 of verse or chapter one. And behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not till she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So chapter 2 really is a, a response or the reaction to the news of Jesus' birth and how the world would respond to him, how his own people would respond to Jesus. And one way the gospel narratives are, are just a accumulation of stories of people's response to Jesus. But here is kind of a a taste of it at the very beginning, the news of his birth. With that, follow along as I read, beginning in verse number 1, and I'll read down to verse number 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophets, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers for Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would just um, encourage us this morning as we gather together in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, I want to begin this narrative looking at the, the main um, characters um, in this uh, story. I, and when I say story, I know that with that comes a lot of weight in our day and age because we think of story, we think of the Grinch or something else. You know, it's, it's nice and, and cute. Uh, so if I say story, I don't mean to take it away from its historical setting. Um, it is... Uh, given to us as what has taken place in time and past in the history. But I want us to look beginning here in chapter 2 at the wise men that came seeking Jesus or the Magi, uh, if you will. We see that beginning in verse number 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, there's many ways you can preach a Christmas story or a narrative, and uh, some of those are good and creative, others of those not so much. Uh, You can tell me how this works at the end of it. Uh, But nevertheless, I want to look just at a few questions that uh, our mind tends to think of when we read this narrative, like who these men were, where they come from, why did they come. And then I want to look at a few principles, I think, that uh, come out of that as we consider uh, this story in front of us. And first of all, who are they? Where do they come from? Well, the Bible is somewhat helpful. And here in verse number one, it says they came from the east. And so that's somewhere east. That's kind of helpful, isn't it? Well, some suggest that, uh, traditions suggest that the wise men were... Uh, dignitaries of sorts. They were uh, considered people, uh, counselors to kings, uh, people in high positions in uh, in the nation or country of Persia, and so they would have came from Persia or maybe even Babylon. Would have been a, about a 800 miles from Jerusalem. Uh, now this is all just trying to put pieces together historically, but as it says they came from the east, we come to see that here is men from another country, from far away. They're coming on this long journey that they've committed to. Uh, And by the way, it isn't like going down to the airport and getting on a plane. Uh, Ed was mentioning about delays this morning in our prayer time. That happens. It's terrible. You got to wait a whole nother day. I mean, this is a commitment. A couple of weeks, a couple of months uh, to journey to see this event that have that has taken place. So uh, the men are from the east, probably Babylon or Persia, somewhere in that area, pretty far away, would have been a long journey for them. Who are they? Well, we get the word magician and magic from magi. That's that's where the word comes from. And so they have something to do with, with magic, we think, or at least something of that sense. Part of those who are part of this group would have been uh, dabbling in magic. But they were more than just what we might consider magicians because magician is a pretty loose term uh, as we come to think about it historically. Uh, These would have been your scholars of your pagan society. 
They would have studied astrology and math and astronomy and uh, they would have focused on religion and cultic practices. And so they were more than just magicians going around with potions in their pocket and just throwing it and creating stuff. Uh, these were the go-to men uh, of the ancient world and, and many of the prominent kingdoms. In fact, uh, we think under Darius, the Magi rose to its prominence and under Persian rule to where they were like the right hand of the king. In fact, what we come to find out is that they uh, have been known to be king makers themselves. And so if the Magi didn't approve of the next guy coming along, he didn't get in, he didn't get in office. Uh, he had to pass the test of these king makers. They had such power and prominence in society at one point. Uh, they were very learned men under, under Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and under, under the Persian rule. They would have been the men that they called together to interpret dreams. You remember that in Daniel, don't you, as we went through that study. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he calls all of his soothsayers and, and all of his people together and he says, tell me what I've dreamed. Uh, these are the men and the class of men that would have been referred to as magi or wise men as our bible so puts it and so they were very prominent dignitaries of a of a foreign of foreign nations uh, so that's who they were uh, they were and had their own priestly system their own sacrificial system and in fact, some commentator says at this point in history, their own king was a feeble, ineffective leader. And so this coming to find Jesus born king of the Jews was something of a political move, as some suggest. And that may have been why Herod was <clears throat> so up in arms when they came. Now, why did they come? Well, the Bible tells us, doesn't it? Verse number two. Tradition tells us that there were probably uh, anywhere from two to twelve people, um, magi coming, depending on where you're from. Uh, some suggest there is three due to the fact of the gifts that were given to them, three gifts, and so there must have been three men. But it was probably a, a pretty big caravan. You're not talking about a couple of us going on a trip to a conference where it's just a couple of us carrying our own luggage to a trip to a conference. You're talking about uh, these are well-to-do men, probably taking with them not just servants but, but some kind of guard that would protect them on this long journey. And so they, here you can imagine this train of people coming into Jerusalem. Where's the king at? Where's the king at? You know, Because they've come to find the king that was born king of the Jews. And so the text tells us kind of who they were, history, we, we see that. Uh, but it's very clear in why they came. Verse number 2, Where is he born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. They have come to <clears throat> honor this newly born king, the king of the Jews. It's interesting, uh, as we have said, they have been known to be kingmakers, but they didn't come to make a king. They come to adore and to worship, to fall prostrate before a king. And how did they know that a king was born? How did they know to look for this star? And the truth is we don't know. Maybe the influence of Daniel in Babylon and Persia 
Uh, the remnants of his teaching. We know there was a Jewish presence in Persia even after the exile. We don't know all that they knew. We don't know the, the stories or the, uh, the history or the prophecies which they had uh, learned and been waiting for. But what we do know is that somehow God amazingly, sovereignly, and joyously got their attention through a display in the night sky. One might say God will move heaven and earth uh, to bring his children home. And I think we see a little bit of that in these wise men as they saw this star and they began to follow it. Now these men came from afar and um, following a star uh, to worship a child. The star in itself is mesmerizing and is a mystery. We don't, maybe alignment of planets. You can read that stuff on your own, Google it, and get all sorts of kind of ideas of what is going on. I don't know of any star that just appears and then just stops over someone's house as kind of here in the text for us. Uh, what we do know is it is God's grace calling these men from afar to come and behold and to worship this newborn king. Jesus himself may have been one to two years old at this time. We gather that because he is in a house. He is called a child, uh, not a newborn babe. And also uh, because uh, his enemy, Herod, is going out to slaughter all the children when the star appeared. Now, what is to, as we kind of see the historical setting of this, I want to just give you a few implications I think are helpful for us um, as we go about our Christmas celebration. One is we see the echo here of the Gentiles and the nations coming to worship and bow down before the Lord of glory. In fact, the first Gentiles that worship Jesus are these magi that we know of. And it is a testimony to the desire and great ambition of our time now, isn't it? That the nations would come and that they would come to know who he is and worship him. Uh, the highlight of church history and and even the, the Great Commission is a an outflow of this great reality that he is not just the king of the Jews, but that the nations will come not only being blessed by him, but come to bless him. Uh, We are reminded of this tone in the Psalms, Psalm 67, as the writer writes so elegantly, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and may he make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, Selah. Let the people praise you, O God, and let the people praise you. Here we see uh, the beginning of this, the seed of this coming to fruition as these foreigners come to worship this small child. Habakkuk 2 continues to set forth this anticipation as it proclaims for us that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you see the earth being filled, going beyond the borders and boundaries of 
of just Jerusalem or uh, Judea, but into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The angels, as we have seen already, bringing us good news to all people. And Simeon, who prophesies as uh, his eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord and prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. There is that one moment in Jesus' ministry before he goes into his what is referred to as the Passion Narrative or his Passion Week in John. And as he is getting ready to, to be crucified and rejected on a whole, you find Greeks coming to his disciples and say, Sirs, we would see Jesus. It is at that point Jesus says, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified because he has come to be a Savior of the world. I would remind you again, church, of that great glimpse in Revelation as that multi-ethnic worship of the Lord goes on around the throne, around his throne. Uh, over and over saying, you are worthy because you have redeemed us. Now that is something that we're used to in our day. Uh, That is the very heart of our missions program and missions effort is to see the gospel go beyond uh, the borders and barriers of traditions, of people groups, of religious uh, practices which has has marked them, whether it's Islam or some other native religion. It is the good news of Jesus Christ which has come to call the nations to bow down and worship uh, him who sits upon the throne. I think it's also necessary to see within the ranks of our own culture the reality of this truth. We're not looking for different kinds of saviors for different people. Uh, Though this seems to be the common thing in our day, the tolerant or the inclusive view, the proper thing we're supposed to say when someone says, you know, I found spiritualism very fulfilling. And so by some kind of outward compulsion, we're meant to respond with that. We're really happy for you and we're great that, that you found some kind of purpose in life or whether it's mysticism or whatever else you want to name it. But the Bible points us back to the great reality of the provision God has given to us. For every kind of person in every kind of situation, the Bible says, as we have seen even last night, there's just one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 Here we see the nations coming Uh, to this great Savior. But the second implication we see in this is that they come to Jesus not as one who would be king, not to make one king, but they come to Jesus who is king. Who is king. With such a humble surrounding as it was with Mary and Joseph, uh, who was poor, we know that by the offering that they offered up when Jesus was Uh, brought to be circumcised it was turtle doves it was the sacrifice of poor people Uh, and here they are in all their humble surroundings and yet they are they are confronted with such wealth and such notoriety as these men come in their train to bow down before him they have come to see the long-awaited king the messiah 
The prophecy we even read in Isaiah 9 is fulfilled in this child. He is the one that we have been waiting on. They've come to bow down and give their treasures before him. Now, if you, <clears throat> if you were there, which none of you were, I don't think, you might have thought, and I assume along with Joseph and Mary, it would have been an odd thing for these finely dressed and well-respected and nicely groomed and, and probably odd clothing to bow down before this child. It would have been an odd scene. You would have seen such dignity and such honor humble themselves and to worship a, a, a child who is born in Nowhereville, living in poverty, and yet this is what they did. The Bible says they fell prostrate before him. That's what worship means. But Paul says that isn't such an odd thing as you might suggest. In fact, what we read in Philippians to the Philippian church, we have such a small view of this. This is the great anticipation for everyone that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, both the small and great alike, the poor and the rich and the, the outcast and the incast and everything in between will bow down before him. Kings and rulers and you and I, none will be exempt from it. We will bow down and proclaim him Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, this child born in a manger is not, uh, is not uh, one ruler among equal among other rulers. It's no round table that he sits at with all the other heads of states sitting with him. There's no chair beside him. He is king of kings and he is lord of lords. What amazing reality of who he is. He is the sovereign lord of glory, the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. And they have come to acknowledge that. They have come to offer themselves and their gifts of allegiance to him. That's what the text tells us, doesn't it? They have this kind of thing that they're going as they look for him. They go to Jerusalem naturally. And, and as they go there, they, they run into Herod and he lies. It's natural to him. And he goes on and as they come, verse number 9 they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, it went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's kind of a statement. They were, it, they, it, you can't put it in words excited. Have you ever been there? Can't put it in words excited. That's kind of what they're saying here. They were just overwhelmed with joy because the star had come. And they were close. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, isn't that a proper order? Isn't there a, a humbling first and then? Isn't there a, a bowing down, submitting, laying ourselves low before him first? Isn't there really in reality, and even in the gospel, a surrender before there's a service? I think you see that here in this surrender. Second, they worship. And of course, they give gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I listened to a sermon this week just trying to wrap my arms around this, and he made much about these presents that were given to him. 
Uh, some suggest they are symbolic of his kingship and his deity, the frankincense being associated with the sacrifices and the myrrh of his suffering and his humanity. And that is very interesting. I don't know as if these men knew that. What we do know is they were expensive gifts. They were treasures. And it would be these very gifts that God would use to sustain them in their flight to Egypt and back to Nazareth. But nevertheless, they come bearing gifts, honoring Christ, honoring this small child as they come. So thirdly, not only does it remind us of that great commission of all peoples coming to bow down before him, and that he is the king of glory. Thirdly, I think we see in this something that I hope we capture week after week, church. That is the great privilege of the body of Christ gathering together, isn't it? Offering ourselves as a, as a sacrifice of worship. Year after year, uh, study after study, sermon after sermon, books and, and talks and Bible studies, all that we've been through is, is bringing us back to this place that we may honor and we may adore, that we may offer up ourselves as, to worship Him. And just even this past year through the book of Hebrews and Philippians and John, all with this great aim of seeing him so that we may worship him, laying ourselves low, humbling ourselves before the greatness of who he is. It's a foolish thing pride is, isn't it? Uh, It's even more foolish when we live our Christian life out of that rather than out of humility because we've been given so much. Uh, We have been blessed by him and every blessing in spiritual places and more that you could speak of. And, and yet what we see in the Christian life is that we come and sometimes get in that attitude adjustment as we come before his word to humble ourselves to, to who he is. He really is much greater than we are, much more glorious than we are. And we find our joy and fulfillment in that proper place of honoring and glorifying him. When we do all that we do to the glory of God, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do in the exercise of your freedoms, the exercise of obedience to him, you do all to the glory of God. And that takes us humbling ourselves. That is the very hard thing for us to do as well, isn't it? Though it is the appropriate thing, it is the hard thing for us to come and humble ourselves before God in worship. When we make things all about us, and all about me, and all about what I want, and all those things, we tend to rob him of his glory, and we, we, we take it for ourselves. And so is the case when we, we come not only making things all about us, but when we, when we fight and bicker among one another, when we continue thriving in that friction, isn't it? We miss the whole point of Christian fellowship in the community of Christ. We miss the whole point of, of walking together in our families. We, we miss it because we're so at odds with our self in focus instead of humility, walking out of being in Christ and all the blessings that we have in Christ. In some ways, I think these men 
present a great example for us because we think it would be easier to give something outside of us, give something even if it was costly to some degree without having to give ourselves. And yet the New Testament model for us is that we first give ourselves and then that which we have. It's much easier that way, isn't it? So we come again being reminded of this great event of these men as they sit before us, the response to the news of this birth, they come being sought by God and seeking God, if we could say. They come to humble themselves in adoration. They worship him. And that is my desire, my, my energy and my effort, not only in my own life, but, but to continually as we study and go through the word of God week after week to present Christ before you. Uh, to encourage you, to strengthen you so that you may worship him. And worship isn't just what we do here on Sunday morning, is it? It's what you do every day of your life. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's acceptable worship unto God. I hope that's your desire and purpose. And the exercise of your gifts, the exercise of your resources, all flowing from the reality that Christ already possesses you. Amen? Well, that is not the only response to the birth of Christ. We see two others, and we won't go into these in much detail, other than there are some who come seeking to worship Christ, and there are others who come to war with him. But be not afraid, beloved. Christ is the victor. Herod and those like him, even those in our own days, seek to stomp out the name of Christ and afflict persecution and suffering on the, on the church. But Jesus says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. There is, however, a third group in this text worth saying something about. The very ones that should have went to find him, they're in the backdrop, aren't they? Notice with me back in the text. They come to Jerusalem asking where he is, born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. They knew. But they didn't go. And I think that for the most part is our generation, isn't it? Many in our area, many in our families, they know. But passively, indifferently, they reject. They don't go. They don't turn to him. They don't respond to him. But even, even in their non-response, they are saying something, aren't they? No. And you can say no long enough to where your passiveness will be an active rejection of Christ. Because it is these same very people in the ministry of Christ who would not go see for themselves this great news of the gospel message that a king has been born from foreigners. But at the end of his life, they were the enemy of his ministry and consenting to put him to death. No heart is ever neutral. Either they're with him or they're against him. And I pray this morning that you have come to respond and, and surrender and in worship. 
because that is the appropriate, that is the best response, that is the right response. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day we gather together. Lord, we just pray that you would strengthen us as we just rejoice in the fact that Christ has come into the world and and in the way in which you've communicated these events, uh, just the scenes in which we see through your word are so uh, encouraging and and Lord, we just pray that you would help us uh, not just to worship Christ today, but but that ought to be. And we pray that this would be a, a renewal, even in our own hearts and minds. Many Christians that are gathered together this morning to worship him would again be reminded, yes, I have surrendered and I do surrender. And yes, I have worshiped and I will continue to worship the one who is born king of the Jews. I pray that would be our heart's desire as a church. And Lord, I do pray that if there's one here that does not know you, that you would, uh, even now, that you would open his eyes, that he would turn from his rebellion against you, and that he would put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We'll give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.